Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store at etsy.com shop slash beyondblathers and take a look at the animal stickers, postcards, keychains, and ornaments we have for sale. Okay, so Mammoth Special Part 2 in our 50th episode extravaganza. Yes, our one-year anniversary extravaganza. Yeah. So I guess this is technically now episode 51, but if you missed Mammoth episode number one, then you got to go back and get the deets. So many facts, really rapid fire. So, uh, so much. I learned so much. <laughs> You'll have to go back and check that out. So once you do that, we will welcome you back with open arms to this episode. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for this one. I I want to talk about more of the discovery around like how we're finding mammoths today. Yeah, so there's so much cool stuff with mammoth fossils. I mean, you got the mummies, you've got the tusks, like pickled mammoths is a thing. So, oh, <laughs> which is just like a mammoth mummy, but it's just like a weirder way of saying it that makes you slightly uncomfortable. But yeah, I guess we should get into it here. So, interestingly, about two thirds of the fossils we find of mammoths are of male mammoths, which begs the question. Why did males die apparently more frequently than females? Or why are they dying in such a way that they get preserved for us to find? And it's possible that this phenomenon can tell us something interesting about mammoth behavior in that mammoths appear to have lived in matriarchal societies, which is not surprising because it seems to be a behavior that we see in current elephants. So basically, there will be a wise older female who'd learned how to survive, who could pass that knowledge on to her relatives in her female family grouping. Whereas young and inexperienced males probably went off to live on their own and like YOLO and they just encountered more deadly obstacles and died more often. So... (laughs) That's on feminism, baby. (laughs) So uh, stay with the crew. Do not leave the crew. uh, And listen to your mom. That's the lessons from the mammoths here. Another interesting thing here is males were also likely fighting against each other for mates. And so that was a pretty risky activity, as is evidenced by Benny and George, which are a pair of mammoths who were found fossilized together with their tusks intertwined. And one tusk is seen stuck through one mammoth's eye, and the other mammoth presumably got stuck and fell with the other and then starved to death. A really crazy way to die. But it tells us a lot about mammoths. We're like, hey, guess they fought each other sometimes and then they sometimes died. Yeah, so that was a thing. And what's cool too about this is, you know, I mentioned before in the past episode that these tusks, like we can tell a lot about the tusk lines. They're kind of like a tree core. If you've ever taken a tree core, you'll see like different lines. And they basically took carbon isotope levels from the tusks and paleontologists saw that they died in the spring. Uh, And that's telling because that's kind of breeding period. So it makes sense that they wouldn't have just been fighting. And no, they got into some fight over a piece of grass or something. No, it was probably they were fighting over a female. And that would be really embarrassing. Imagine you're like trying to impress a lady and then you accidentally stick a guy in the eye with your tusk and then fall over and die. It's not uh, 
not very sexy. So <laughs> so that was one crazy way for mammoths to die. There are also mammoth mass graves, basically, which were places where, for instance, in the case of Mammoth Site in Hot Springs, South Dakota, there was a sinkhole. <laughs> um, and so this is now, this site is now an active dig site and a museum. But the area, you know, thousands of years ago, looks like a really nice pristine pond and mammoths would go in and they would get stuck in the sinkhole and die. And so now this site has just like piles, literally piles of mammoths. Like there's upwards of 58 Colombian mammoths and three woolly mammoths, which is really, really cool because it's a site that shows that these two mammoths obviously had an overlapping range. So I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, I remember seeing that in Emily Grasley's prehistoric road trip documentary. It made me want to go there so bad. I just... Yeah. Like, it's an active dig site, and you can see these, like, piles of skulls and leg bones and spines. Like, what a fascinating place to be. Yeah, that's amazing. And so are these the mammoth mummies or is that a whole different thing? No, so they're a whole different thing. So I guess to talk about mammoth mummies, we should probably talk, go back to, you know, the Yukon and Alaska, because that's going to be my favorite thing to talk about in this episode, and talk about that environment. Because conveniently, woolly mammoths lived in a very cold and dry environment. And in the Yukon and Alaska, they find a lot of those really cool mummy remains of mammoths and a lot of other animals from that steppe environment who have also been mummified. And there's a couple reasons for that. So one, the ground is permafrost there. So that means that throughout the year, the majority of the soil is frozen even in the summer. So there will be basically a small section at the top of the soil that will like freeze and thaw like normal ground, but then the rest of it is permanently frozen, permafrost. And as a result, it's basically become a refrigerator for mummified animals and preserved remains. So it just really makes sure that everything stays intact for a long period of time. So that's one reason you're finding a lot of these mummies up there. Another is that not only are there remains to be found in the Yukon, but there are also activities happening up there that allow those things to be found. So If you know anything about the Yukon, it might be that there was a gold rush there, and that was like the early 1900s. The Yukon still has a really big gold mining industry. And Sophia and I have both been to Dawson City, which is like the famous site of the gold rush. Mining is still a big industry there. It's a really fun place to go. I highly recommend it once the pandemic's over. And the kind of mining that occurs there is called placer mining. And the way it's done is that the miners will go to a riverbank and basically... (laughs) Like they basically take a giant hose and will shoot massive amounts of water at the cliffside and melt away the permafrost to get to the minerals inside the land. Obviously, this kind of mining has massive environmental implications because not only does it use up a lot of water, it is also literally washing away the land, exposing permafrost and creating water pollution. So lots of environmental implications there, but we won't get into that right now at least. But it is a really great way to find remains of Pleistocene creatures uh, because they've been covered up for thousands of years by all of this soil. But that water that's slowly eroding the hillside nice and slowly and carefully exposes things that are inside the cliffside in a more gentle way than like a bulldozer just taking chunks out. So it's a really 
convenient way for paleontologists to find a lot of cool stuff. Now, sometimes the placer mining exposes just bones, but sometimes they find mummified remains, which allows us not just to look at their bones, but also look at things like stomach contents, food that might have been stuck in their teeth, their brains, parasites they may have had. Like there is, it's almost like, I feel like every time I read about a new mummified organism, I'm like, there are infinite possibilities with what you can learn from this body. It's kind of amazing. And we can also tell how they died usually. So Liuba, who's one of the most famous mummified mammoths, you've probably seen a picture of this animal. Uh, She was only 35 days old when she presumably fell into a mud pit and suffocated. And we can tell that because of the mud that was found inside her. If she had drowned, you probably would have seen like mud particles in her lungs, but it was just sort of like in her esophagus or trunk. And so, yeah, that's how she died. And we could tell that pretty easily from the mummy. Another young mammoth mummy, Chroma, was found with her mother's milk still in her belly. So, like, that is absolutely amazing to me that we can see those things from animals that are, like, thousands of years old. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. And I didn't realize that it was so connected to the mining industry, but, of course, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, even in Alberta, we find some really cool things in Fort Mac from the mining there. But of course there, they're using like bulldozers and like chopping chunks of rock out. And they, like in the case of that amazing uh, ankylosaur, although I feel like it wasn't an ankylosaur and I can't remember the proper name for it now. Anyway, they like accidentally chopped it in half before they realized it was a dinosaur. So yeah, in this case, like, yeah, you find some really great stuff and Yeah, it was an interesting thing to be learning about paleontology up there because you got the perspective of, you know, people who obviously cared about the environment, but also understood that we wouldn't know a lot about what we know now about the Pleistocene without it. Was that, did that sentence make any sense? (laughs) Well, you mean without, without mining. Yeah, we wouldn't know what we know now about the Pleistocene without mining. So it is, it is a bit of a... Well, it's an interesting to think about. It's sort of like, uh, do like, is it worth it? Probably not, but uh, <laughs> it is. It is nice. Like, if it's happening anyway, I think it's nice that we can at least get some natural history knowledge out of it. I feel like all of this is really telling me to stay away from mud. <laughs> Just you will <laughs> die if you get stuck in mud. Yeah. Well, one other thing I was wondering was about the ivory from the mammoth tusks, like. Is that harvested? Yeah. And oh, this is something like I've wondered about so long because if you walk into like Banff or any like touristy mountain town, you'll often see jewelry that's advertised as mammoth ivory. And I've always like felt kind of weirdly uncomfortable with it. Like I think, I mean, I've got so many negative connotations with ivory already And I understand, obviously, they're extinct. It's not hurting the species. But there's something about the glamorization of ivory that just will always make me uncomfortable, I think. And so I wanted to sort of look into it briefly. Unfortunately, I couldn't do like a full journalistic investigation. But I did find out some interesting information about the harvest of mammoth ivory. So in Siberia, the melting permafrost has made access to mammoth ivory much easier than it has been in the past. And so many people have turned to the harvest of this ivory as a means of income. And 
This is legal in Russia, but you do need to obtain a permit to legally trade it. And recently, getting permits has become much more difficult, and the sellers are complaining that the authorities are confiscating their fines more frequently and for longer periods for inspection. And so what's happened is it's really fueled a black market for these fines, which causes a lot of problems, uh, especially for scientists, because before scientists were able to, well, basically these these people harvesting the ivory would find a tusk and they'd go, okay, hey, scientists, you can measure this. And also there's like a whole bunch more bones that I don't want, so you can take those. So the scientists were getting, you know, a bit out of it. But of course, once things get illegal, the scientists never hear about the fines. They're not getting the chance to sort of see these tusks beforehand. So that's an issue. But another issue is that as the trade becomes more underground, there's increasing chance that elephant ivory may be sold under the disguise of mammoth ivory. Now, the catch here is that many people tote mammoth ivory as being an ethical alternative to elephant ivory because these animals are already extinct and the market seems to enjoy mammoth ivory just as much as elephant. But others say that allowing the trade of mammoth ivory just allows for more opportunities for the unregulated sale of elephant ivory. Because once ivory is carved, you have to look really carefully at the patterns in the ivory to determine whether it's mammoth or if it's elephant. And it's not impossible to do, but it can be challenging, especially if you're looking at like a whole store's stock of ivory. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a really interesting issue. And, and there have even been discussions by like cities, which is the organization that regulates wildlife trade, about whether they should categorize mammoths as endangered and make it like the first extinct animal to be endangered to prevent wow. the trade of this ivory. But then, you know, there's other people who are saying if you ban mammoth ivory... Like they're just going to it's just it's not going to help anyone because it's just going to become more underground and more, you know, it'd be bad for the scientists. It'd be bad for elephants. Like, yeah. So it seems like a very interesting issue, <laughs> like very uh, uh, heated, I guess. And I also read an article in the Narwhal recently that discussed how in the Yukon, the Trondek Huechin First Nation is concerned that placer miners are taking culturally and historically significant mammoth ivory and selling it. And those tusks can go from like $1,000 to $36,000 on the market. So it's not just something that's happening in Siberia. It happens in Canada too. And according to that article, Trondek Huechin settled its land claims with the federal and territorial government in the late 1990s. So if a mammoth tusk is uncovered on its settlement lands, the First Nation rightfully owns it. So yeah, there's like, yeah, it's it's a really interesting issue and I'd like to, to look more into it. And of course, the First Nation is calling for increased enforcement and regulation on the acquisition of these materials. So wow, I need to read that article. It was a really good one. I was like, oh, this is super cool. Is it legal in Canada to sell or to like harvest mammoth ivory and sell it? Then? I don't know, actually. I, to my understanding, all fossil finds belong to the government, or I guess in this case, the, the Trondek Huechin, um, according to their land claims. So I wonder, like, in places like Banff, when they're selling mammoth ivory, is it from Russia then? Yeah, it would have to be. I, I did ask my prof about that, and he seemed to be under the impression that it would have had to be from. Siberia. Ah, that's very interesting. If you find mammoth ivory, if anyone happens upon it, uh, in Canada, <laughs> at least it legally 
belongs to the government or I guess in some cases also the First Nation. Regardless, you should probably contact a museum, let them know, or a local paleontologist. They'll probably know what to do with it. But if anyone happens to find a you know mammoth tusk out of curiosity, but if you do, please let us know. That would be super cool. But yeah, I just think that's a really interesting topic. And it seems like it's very, it seems like there's a lot of pros and cons to go through. Like, and, and the, the trouble with like trying to decide if it's worth it to like increase enforcement on a black market is you don't really know how much is out there and you don't know how much is either helping or hurting. Right. Anyway, so that's, that's another cool issue I found about mammoths. Another one I wanted to address, and this is definitely like tangential to the topic of mammoths, but I figure while we're talking about permafrost and we're talking about placer mining, I just thought that this was sort of like a personal experience I wanted to share because I think it's interesting and I think it's important. But I mean, people, if you're environmentally aware, you might be familiar with the concern of permafrost melt in the Arctic. And the reason that's a really big issue is when uh, basically permafrost is just the ground, but inside of it is a whole bunch of stored carbon. And the concern is that as the climate warms, the ground isn't refreezing and a lot of carbon gets emitted into the atmosphere. So that's a really big carbon sink, as we call them. And so it's a really big climate change issue. And before when I would learn about permafrost, like in high school or in my early university days, I always thought it was like, I imagined it as sort of just like the ground getting soggier. I don't know why that was my image of it. But like the idea of like frozen ground melting didn't have like a really strong image in my mind. But since going to the Yukon, we saw like what permafrost melt looked like. And it was quite literally like we walked to the side of the Alaska Highway, which is basically the only highway that goes through the whole Yukon and it's very very important like there's not a lot of roads up there and right next to the highway there was a river and we like walked down the slope and it was the middle of winter so like it was safe and everything but we get to this point in the slope and the entire hillside has fallen away because of permafrost melt basically what had happened was the ground was melting and where it melts is usually yeah like in exposed areas like cliff sides rivers things like that and it was like a landslide it happened and we were there with a permafrost researcher and he said like this happened in hours like and it was like an entire section of the river that had just like fallen so and it was right next to the Alaska Highway like a very important artery for both the U.S. and Canada (laughs) like Uh, So it could have easily destroyed the section of the highway and it does, permafrost melt does really affect roads up there and make it hard for people to get to and from the places they need to go. So I just wanted to mention that because I think I had a really specific image of what permafrost melt looked like in my mind, but it quite literally is like a huge and destructive force, not just in the sense of greenhouse gases, but also very physically. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I feel like it is very hard to conceptualize climate change like and how quickly things are happening I guess and yeah like when you're in the north like you definitely see you see the effects of of climate change pretty strongly and like even this year I'm not saying this is specifically because of climate change but it was a really weird weather event where like White Horse had way more snow than they've had in like decades like insane amounts of snow and normally it's a really dry place so you don't get a lot of snow there but 
yeah, I mean, there are changes happening and you see them a lot in the north and uh, yeah, not to be super depressing and everything. Sorry, you came here for mammoths <laughs> and I'm coming at you with some like ivory trade issues <laughs> from frost <laughs> and melt climate change. and climate change. But <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, but I think it's important to know and it's interesting and I... I wasn't, like, depressed when I saw the permafrost melt. I was mostly just, like, shocked and, like, in awe that this could happen just because, like, a bunch of water came out of the ground and melted out of the ground. Super weird. Anyway, want to talk about another depressing thing? Extinction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of sad stuff, let's talk about de-extinction. Because if you Google mammoth, like... Probably five of the articles on the first page are going to be about de-extinction. So I'm sure you're all wondering about it. So do we want to talk about it? Let's let's hand yeah. the mic over to Sophia because Sophia is the de-extinction expert. Yeah, it's so funny that I'm like, I don't know. I actually feel like de-extinction is like one of the topics I know the most about because I, I guess, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but in university, I was an English major and philosophy minor. Um, And I was really interested in environmental ethics, and I still am. And so most of my philosophy courses, I took environmental ethics courses. Yeah, so one of the seminars that I took was on the ethics of de-extinction with Dr. Jennifer Welchman, who's definitely one of the experts on the ethics around this issue. So de-extinction, for people who haven't heard of it before, it is exactly how it sounds. It's bringing extinct species back from the dead, de-extincting them. But it's a lot more complicated than that. You know, it's not just like Jurassic Park, like you find their DNA and somehow clone them kind of situation. There are a lot of different ways to kind of achieve de-extinction. Some are more sort of fancy, I guess, or like sci-fi-y, like using... CRISPR and like genetic engineering technology to like edit DNA to get back to the DNA of an extinct species and then you know using in vitro fertilization to like use a living animal to like breed this extinct animal and bring them back to life um so that's kind of like the flashy version of de-extinction and just to clarify when we're talking about like using a current animal, it would be like a similar species. So if it were mammoths we're trying to bring back, the hypothetical living species would probably be like an Asian elephant. Or if it was a passenger pigeon we were trying to revive, it would be like a regular city pigeon. Yeah, like it would be using like a, the, the closest living yeah. relative. Something with similar DNA. Yeah, and then, but there's also like a lot more, I would say, realistic and kind of techniques that we've been using since the dawn of agriculture, like breeding, you know, just it's called backbreeding where you can try to take like the closest living ancestor and just like keep selecting for the traits that are similar to that extinct animal and just keep selecting for it, keep selecting for it, breeding them together to get closer and closer to the extinct animal. So those are just a couple types of the technology of de-extinction um, or, or the the technique. So in the case of the woolly mammoth specifically, there are a bunch of different projects trying to like quote unquote revive the woolly mammoth at universities like Harvard, Kyoto University, 
also Pennsylvania State University. And all of these projects would use gene editing. And what they would be creating is actually an elephant-mammoth hybrid using Asian elephant DNA and then trying to engineer it to become more like what we know mammoth DNA was like. So they're not, none of them are really saying like we're going to bring back exactly the woolly mammoth. They just want to create a hybrid that would be similar to a mammoth that could fill that ecological niche because we don't have an elephant that lives in the Arctic anymore. (laughs) So a really famous project that you probably would hear about a lot is from this nonprofit organization called Revive and Restore, which is based in California. And they were originally founded to try to de-extinct the passenger pigeon. Um, One of the founders of Revive and Restore is just like extremely obsessed with the passenger pigeon. (laughs) A lot of de-extinction people are really into the passenger pigeon. But then in 2015, they launched the Woolly Mammoth Revival Project. And they say the goal is to like re-engineer a woolly mammoth-like species that they can introduce back to the tundra to combat climate change because Olivia, like, I guess you didn't really talk about this, but I guess mammoths would sort of trample down a lot of like larger vegetation that would grow. And so that would help keep the tundra cooler. So I don't know. I mean, I think this is like, this is just this is my opinion, but like, I think they just want to bring back the woolly mammoth. Well, yeah, because with that <laughs> argument, like, bring back cows. How much just have a bunch of cows on the tundra? Yeah. Like, or just like bring in yaks or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, but I think I think this comes down to one of the big issues with the extinction, which like, I don't know, just admit that you want to do it because it's cool. Don't try to justify it for other reasons, in my opinion, but we'll get into it in a second. Yeah, so ultimately what they would create is sometimes called a mammophant, which is an <laughs> elephant-mammoth hybrid species that would look and function like a woolly mammoth, but it would not be exactly a woolly mammoth. But they haven't been able to do this yet. They've been working on it for a lot of years. And it's like every year there are articles that come out that are like, oh, this is about to happen and it hasn't happened yet. And I think so, you know, I for my final project for that seminar, I created an episode of another podcast called Terra Informa, where I talked about the ethics of de-extinction, which we can link it in the show notes But my argument was basically that when it comes to de-extinction, people focus too much on the flashy technology of it and the cool factor of it, and they don't think about the ethical concerns with it. So I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. There are a couple things. One, which I think is maybe like the least important ethical issue, but is still worth mentioning, is the issue of authenticity. Like, what does it mean to bring back a species that is not it's not the same species you know it's it's close to it it feels like a similar niche and genetically it's it's very close but it's not the real thing and it was created by humans it wasn't created by evolution so sometimes philosophers when they're talking about authenticity they'll bring up something like oh you know what if someone what if you you went to a museum to see a Rembrandt or something and then it wasn't a Rembrandt actually it was just 
a fake, but it was like perfectly made to look exactly the same, it feels like you should be able to appreciate it the same, but you can't because it's the authenticity problem. It's not authentic. Like there's something about the authentic version that holds, I don't know, more power, I guess. So that's something to think about with de-extinction when we're bringing species back. Is it really the same species? Another thing to think about, which I think is a lot more important, is just kind of the ethical implications for the animals themselves and the animals involved with these processes. So what duty do we have to the animals that we would be creating? Probably the first few generations of these mammoths would probably be kept in like a research facility or something. And probably like most of their lives would just be being tested, probably. Like, I doubt they would just be released into the tundra right away. Mm-hmm. Like, how would that affect the ecosystem? You know, their their lives would probably involve a lot of suffering. And then there's issues for the other animals, the elephants that are involved with this process. For example, like, you would need to use a female Asian elephant as a surrogate mother, but you would be well, one, you'd be doing an invasive, like, in vitro fertilization procedure on her. But you would also be, like, using an embryo that's genetically different from her, which would – it c- could be a risk for sure. And also, I just feel like that's, like – like, this animal can't consent to being, like, a surrogate for a weird human experiment. And, you know, her – her kid who's not really her kid I guess is going to be taken away from her and then when it comes to actual conservation I mean Asian elephants are endangered and I think there's such an irony around de-extinction where it's like all about bringing species back from the dead instead of focusing on the species that are near death near extinction that we currently have that we would be sort of ignoring in favor of something cooler that we could do So, like, since elephants are endangered, maybe we should be focusing on using these female elephants to, like, continue Asian elephant populations rather than trying to bring back mammoths slash create a new hybrid species. So that's, like, a whole thing. And there's a lot of other issues, obviously. Like, I touched on the ecosystem, but, I mean, legitimately, what would the effect be? Like, the tundra doesn't have anything like that. (laughs) Well, that's the craziest thing about this to me, is, like, the only place where a mammoth step environment exists today or a similar environment is uh, where the saiga antelope live, and I'm actually forgetting where that is. I believe it's somewhere in uh, Siberia. I have to double-check that. But anyway, um, it's a completely different ecosystem at this point. You know, climate change happened, the environment changed, it's not the same world anymore. An environment, like ecosystems adapt to what's going on around them. And these ecosystems have had thousands of years to adapt. So it seems silly to me to think that this could have any benefit to that ecosystem. Like, I think we've done enough in that area. I think there are other, there are other, uh, bigger problems to be solved when it comes to the tundra with easier solutions. Well, maybe not easier, but more effective solutions. Mm-hmm. The other concern I have, too, is like just knowing the little I do about elephant health in captivity. I mean, I can imagine these kinds of procedures would require a lot of 
pretty intense procedures that might require an elephant to be put under for a little bit. And that's a really, like with an animal with such a large body, these procedures become so much more difficult and they become so much more risky. So even from like that sense, like I just don't see how they could do it in a safe way. And yeah, I think what what frustrates me most about, I mean, the whole like de-extinction of the mammoth, like, yes, it would be so cool in like, I don't know, that sort of curious childlike part of my brain. But also it's like, I think it really distracts from the potential that de-extinction has to rather than completely bring back a species that has gone extinct, perhaps to redirect those technologies into taking genes of species that we currently have alive and trying to improve the genetic diversity of those populations. Like, I mean, in the case of like the white rhinos, they're doing that right now. They're trying to basically restart up the population with genes that have been taken a long time ago from different individuals. So I I, I kind of also think it it bothers me that this is sort of what gets the attention instead of like the conservation opportunities, which I'm sure like also have many drawbacks. But yeah, I think, yeah, it just it just gets so much attention. There's there's just so much potential there for preventing the extinction spiral, I guess, which is basically when you have a really small population that's interbreeding and interbreeding. And eventually they interbreed so much that it their genes just get really bad, basically, and they have no genetic diversity and they all die. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, magazines do stories about de-extinction all the time. And usually the cover image will be of like a, a mammoth or maybe like a saber-toothed tiger or something like b- big me- megafauna that have been extinct for a long time. And these are not what de-extinction technology will be the most effective for. Well, the other thing I was going to say is, I mean, we also don't know that mammoths went extinct because of humans. So what if there was something else in their environment that was just like not working for them? I think a lot of the argument for de-extinction is like humans have an obligation to basically fix their mess and bring back the animals that we drove to extinction. But we don't know that we drove the mammoths to extinction. There's no solid evidence for that. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to touch on that. I think a lot of de-extinction centers around guilt and kind of our own feelings of of almost being haunted by the species that we've driven to extinction and the impacts that humans have had. And I always think of it as as like an apology, you know, like I think an effective apology is just genuine and then and then you just try to be a better person going forward rather than like I don't know, trying to bring back like zombie species like did these species ask for it? Like, I always think of tropes from, like, movies and stuff or, or you know, I don't know, even in, like, Harry Potter and stuff. Like, the the idea of being able to bring things back from the dead is always so tempting to us. But narratively, anytime that someone is brought back from the dead, usually they're not themselves anymore. It's not as satisfying as you thought they would be. They feel disturbed, I guess. So I think... Like, I think if we feel guilt about the extinction of a lot of animals that we that we have driven to their deaths, which may or may not include mammoths, I think the remedy for that is to really focus on conservation going forward rather than trying to, like, 
reach into the past and bring things back into a world that they no longer fit into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's all to say that I think genetic engineering and is a very slippery slope ethically. And I I totally agree with you, Olivia, that I I think it can be used for so much good when it comes to conserving species that we still have. But I think it's quite a distraction to focus on like flashy things like bringing the woolly mammoth back. Yeah, definitely. And ultimately, some bigger actions are going to be needed to avoid this extinction crisis or mitigate it. Like literally, what if you just brought the woolly mammoth back and then like all the permafrost melts and they go extinct again? Like Like, that's probably what would happen. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it just, oh my gosh, it just is also silly in my mind. But anyway, so that was a really weirdly uncheerful episode, as it turns out. I don't think I was expecting that. I kind of forgot what I'd put in this section of uh, our (laughs) two-parter. So, (laughs) anywho, thank you, Sophia, for telling us all about de-extinction and sharing your your knowledge. I I wish I knew more about de-extinction because it truly is so interesting and so complex. Well, no, I mean, thank you for all that mammoth information in the last two episodes. Yeah, that was quite the extravaganza. I feel like I learned a lot about mammoths, both like how it was when they were alive and how it is now that they're extinct. So, yeah, I guess that's a that's a wrap on the mammoth. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And like if you want to learn more, because I got deeply obsessed with mammoths, I always recommend people check out PBS Eons. It's on YouTube. It is excellent for like really interesting paleontology stories. So check that out if you want to learn more. Some of the information from this episode was from PBS Eons, as well as the Brain Scoop with Emily Grasley. And yeah, so shout out to to those two YouTube channels. Great. Yeah, we'll we'll link uh, everything in our show notes. And of course, if you'd like to stay up to date, give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at Beyond Blathers. And make sure to tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye! Bye!